great to be back with you. We've been gone, I think for the last five weeks I have been, and after 37 days you're happy to be back in a bed that you've called your own, and it's nice to be able to dig into your closet instead of the suitcase, so I don't know that Arkansas is home yet. We're still passing through, but it's good to be back home, in quotes, and a good, of course, to be back with you. Um, just for, as, as a freebie, uh, the, the songs we sang this tonight, do any of you know which one has a hometown connection? The last one we just sung was written by Will Slater. Does anyone know where Will Slater called home? Well, and, and he was the proprietor of the Fort Smith Songbook Company. He got his start in Eureka Springs as a songwriter in the Churches of Christ, and he had a songbook publishing company right here, and so that's the, that's the hometown connection to one of those songs. If you didn't know that, now you can go away and say you at least learned something tonight at church. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a passage that, uh, the, the verse that we'll read to begin with, I'm sure we've all heard and we, we know and we have cherished, but maybe as we begin to wrestle with it, we don't always know what to do with it. 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the second half, Paul is, is commending Timothy to the study of God by digging deeply into his word as he does so often with Timothy in this, in this relationship that he has with him. He says, you ought to be preaching God, but to preach God, you must know his Word And so, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And every preacher or would-be preacher or Bible class teacher has been encouraged with those words that if you will stick with the scriptures, God will not let you down. And those, that's a true sentiment. And as we have looked at those words before, and we have studied the Bible so many times, I, I know the crowd that I am talking to, that you are people who have loved the scriptures and loved the God of whom the scriptures speak, and that is a great foundation to have built your life on and a great legacy to have left to a next generation. But usually when we study the scriptures, when we open the Bible to understand what God has said to us, we, we understand it through a particular lens and with a particular eye as, as this. We are New Testament Christians. Have we ever heard that, that language before? And, and yes, we are New Testament. It would be kind of silly to call ourselves Old Testament Christians. There's no such thing. We understand that Jesus ushers in the new covenant and, and that there is the fullness of everything that God has had planned from the beginning of time. And even before that, it all comes to pass. It all comes to fruition as part of the new covenant. And we, we are blessed for living in this time when we can look back and we can see the fullness of God's plan. That we're not having to just catch glimpses of it here and there and wonder about the fulfillment, but we can, from the fulfillment, look back and see the foundation that he was laying. But you know, when Paul wrote these words to Timothy, and when he wrote other such language like to the Romans where he says, Scripture is, is important, it's useful for your learning and for your encouragement that on, on the darkest of days you can read the Scripture and you can be built up and reminded of who God is. 
What were those men refer? What was Paul referring to when he said the Scripture? He was looking back at the Old Testament, wasn't he? He had in his mind the Scriptures that he had learned from a child and that Timothy had learned being, being brought up with, with a respect for what is, is sometimes by us called the Old Testament, by others the Hebrew Bible, but for Paul it was just what? The Scriptures. The writings of God. If you look back and you hear the quotes that Jesus makes as he preaches, this is the way that God has intended for it to be from the very beginning. Yes, he has the authority to just speak that into existence as God himself, but he goes back and he quotes well, Moses. He quotes Isaiah. He might quote any of the other prophets. He might quote David in the Psalms or some of the other psalmists. And you go and you look and see that our new testament is full of old testament quotes in fact it would be right for us to say that you cannot understand the new testament you really can't even appreciate what god is doing without having a healthy understanding of the old of what comes first an acquaintance of mine dr jesse long who's the head of the bible department at lubbock christian uh, he, he's an Old Testament scholar, he's an archaeologist, and, and the way he kind of puts it is he holds up his Bible, you know, you have your, your New Testament begins about here, so he holds up the first three quarters of his Bible, he says, this is the Bible. He holds up the New Testament, he says, this is the appendix. As if to say, this is, these are just the extra notes, but if you want to really dig into who God is and how he has worked through the history of mankind and how he has embedded himself in the story then you look at what we call the Old Testament. We have a bad habit, I think, in our culture. This is not everywhere in the world, but in our culture, when something becomes old, what do you do with it? You toss it. After a while, old means bad. Old means soon ready to depart for the happy hunting grounds or the garbage disposal or, or what. Other cultures maybe have a better appreciation for things that are old. The Scriptures certainly look at, at people who have lived long and said we should respect them for their wisdom and for their knowledge and experience. <clears throat> but when we look at the Old Testament, and we call it the Old Testament, which I, I know I know that the Hebrew writer said, and when he said this one is new or that there's a new coming, that means there has to be some distinction. The opposite of new is old. But that terminology of Old Testament really isn't something that is, is on every page of the New Testament Scripture. They don't look at it as something old and to be retired and, and just never look at that again except when we have to answer a Bible trivia question. For them, it is still the living, breathing Word of God. And as they hoped to understand that God... They turned to the scroll, I would say the pages, but a scroll, they unrolled the one long page and they read. And they drank deeply from that well of knowledge and wisdom that is Scripture. When I was first beginning to preach, the first full-time preaching responsibility that I was given was at the City Park Church of Christ in Floydata, Texas. Uh, if you've never heard of Florida, Texas, you're not the only ones, but it is the pumpkin capital of the United States. So now there's two things you've learned at church tonight. Um, 
And so I was, I was getting ready to preach my first series, and I wanted to preach through uh, the, the, the Beatitudes, the first, at least Matthew chapter 5, at least get that. I said, if these are the words of Jesus as he is coming on the scene and that he is, is teaching people about kingdom living, and, and what a great place to start our time together and work together. And, and my grandmother saintly, godly woman who had instilled faith in my father and in turn in me, I call her up and say, uh, Grandma, I'm, I'm getting ready to, to, to preach this first series, and she's excited with me because her grandson is a preacher, and that's awesome. And what are you preaching on? I'm preaching on, on the, the Sermon on the Mountain, the Beatitudes, and, and there's kind of a silence on the other end. And she says, Levi, don't you know that that's Well, that's before Acts 2. That's before the foundation of the church. That's still Old Testament. Yeah, I know. I I understand where she was coming from, and I hope you do too, that there is a distinction. Things are different on this side of the cross, aren't they? And, And it's not God who put in that blank page between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew and said, this is old, this is... I understand that. But if our attitude towards anything that is on that side of the cross is to dismiss it as less important, dare I say unimportant, then we've missed the whole point. And we certainly don't have the attitude towards Scripture that Jesus did, that the apostles did, nor God who wrote it and the Spirit who inspired it. So friends, tonight I want us to think about the Old Testament and some of the ways that we should be hearing those words. Particularly, I want to to bust through some some idea. I think we have a, a false idea that in the Old Testament, God was a certain way perhaps extra stern. He, he hadn't had his fiber that morning or something. Just We have this picture of God being harsh in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's all love and joy and peace and, and patience and kindness and goodness. and fa- New Testament God is great. Old Testament God is, is a little cranky. And because we buy into that dichotomy sometimes, that does not help our understanding or appreciation of the old and new and how they really should work together. They're not at odds, are they? They work together to reveal God to us, to show us man's part in God's unfolding drama. But because we are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, we don't know what to do with it. I was in a Bible class recently, and we were reading through the the prophetic moments of Jesus. And when I say prophetic, I don't mean where he is foretelling the future. In fact, if you and I were, were to go back and read the prophetic books of the Old Testament, the five major prophets, the twelve minor, and, and there are prophetic points even in many of the other books, but if we were to read those, that language and, and their topic, oftentimes they're not foretelling the future. What are they doing? They're commenting on the here and now. They're even talking about the past, but they're giving God's perspective on those things. This is how God has seen you live. This is how God has seen you fail. And this is what he's going to do about it. And oftentimes as we read those prophetic portions of Scripture, we we hear God's judgment and we see God's judgment against sin 
against unrighteousness, against injustice, against selfishness, against false religion that only goes skin deep. We see God saying, none of this is acceptable to me, and I will hold you accountable for the promises that you have made. You are, after all, my people. Well, those sound like timely and, and timely reminders needed in every generation. We combat some of many of those same attitudes, all of them really. But as we were in this Bible class and we were reading uh, Matthew chapter 23 and the parallels in Luke where Jesus is taking the Pharisees to task and he says, woe to you for this and woe, for, woe and woe and woe. And it's not, it's not W-O-A-H like a horse. It's not just slow down woe. What, what kind of woe is it? It's W-O-E. It's doom has come upon you and upon your house because you have made a mockery of everything that is godly and everything that is good. And we as a Bible class had a hard time knowing what to do with the words of Jesus. And my observation coming away from that Bible class was we are not familiar enough with the prophets. We're not familiar enough with the Old Testament to recognize when Jesus is speaking with that kind of language because we don't know what to do with our Old Testaments. We're ignorant of most of them. We don't understand the themes, the cultural idioms, the concepts. We don't know the historical context most of the time to set the stage and where to plug things in because not everything in the Old Testament was written chronologically. And so we just scratch our head and move on and, and just hope that we get to the New Testament where things seem to be a little easier. <clears throat> we also approach the Old Testament a certain way because of who we are culturally. And culture can get pretty specific. By, by us, I mean in the American churches of Christ. Perhaps you have uh, sometime had, had a discussion with someone and they've approached you to say, Church of Christ... You're those people, and there's, there's two, two things that always follow. You're those people. Either you're those people who don't believe in music, and uh, that's wrong terminology. Of course we believe in music, and of course there's music in the church. Or you're those people who don't believe in the Old Testament. Had both of those. And, and actually both of them can kind of tie together in, in what we're going to say next. You're those people who don't believe in the New Old Testament because we often call ourselves New Testament Christians. And we would say, we'd, we'd look back at a passage like Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 says, There is coming a day when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and it will not be like the one that I made with their forefathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And so there's some distinction between old and new. And we say, we are people of the new covenant. And that's true. Yes, we can put a period there. That's, that's a foundational statement that we ought to be able to build our spiritual house on. But when you get into the second half of what sometimes people say, and you say, well, you know, there's, there's no mention in the Bible of them using instruments. And this is not a sermon on instrumental music. This is just an accessible illustration. And somebody says, oh, wait, oh, wait, I've, I've got one. And they turn in their Bible perhaps to Psalm 150. That's just an easy one. It's at the end of the Psalms and they read and it says, Praise the Lord. And you're like, yes, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord with the, with the lyre and with the harp and with the cymbal and with the timbrel. And you're like, yeah, not that part. And we would explain what? 
Well, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we don't see those things carried over, and there is a distinction between the old and the new. That, my friends, is something that is unique or has its unique roots in the American churches of Christ. I'm not saying it's wrong. I think it is a very, a very right observation that there's a difference between the old and the new. But there was a time in broad American Christian history where you could open your Bible to anything in the Bible, old and new, point your finger at it and say, look, the text says we should worship God with this instrument or with this incense or our our priest should have this robe or whatever you want to come up with that you could justify out of the Old Testament. They'd say, well, we've got Bible for it right here. In 1816, there was a fellow by the name of Campbell. You may have heard of him. And he preached a sermon called the Sermon on the Law. Of course, by law, he meant the Old Testament law. And he made some observations. Alexander Campbell was not a a Campbellite. Alexander Campbell would not even have referred to himself as a disciple or a member of the Churches of Christ. He was uh, recently removed from the Presbyterian denomination. And at the time, he was sojourning among the Baptists. And he got up at the Baptist convention. He, he was one of them and he preached this sermon. And he said the new covenant supersedes. That is, it fulfills and it comes and it ushers in things that are better in every way. It supersedes the old covenant. And so the old covenant is secondary to the new. And I don't have any problem with that. I don't suppose you do either. But at the time, that was downright controversial. At the time, they threw him out of their denomination. Campbell's sojourning with the Baptists did not stop because he said, and we have to be baptized for the remission of sins. They kicked him out over this issue here, that he said the Old Testament is not where we find our salvation. The Old Testament is not where we find Jesus revealing God in in, in this fullness But we are a New Testament people. And they said, Bible is Bible, Alexander. And he said, but the New Testament is is better. Isn't that a word from the book of Hebrews? That the New Testament, by New Testament, that's language for new covenant that is built on better promises and ushered in by a better high priest. It supersedes and it is superior to the old This was the criticism they levied against him. They said, by one fell swoop, you aim to destroy the whole of the Old Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, your denial of the authority of the Old Testament has done much towards the weakening of the authority of the Bible. Goodness, the man was preaching that we should love the Bible. We should just understand how God has laid some things out. We should understand that through the passing of time and the fullness of time that Jesus has come and that since the cross, things are different and things are better. And so finding no denomination that would, would agree with him, he began to think along the lines, maybe denominations are just a little too controlling of their preacher's preaching and of their members' faith. And he said, you know, instead of, now that I'm leaving the Baptists, instead of finding another denomination to join, maybe I don't need a denomination at all. Maybe I can just be a Christian. And that sounds like another good idea that came out of his study. So the Old Testament, what shall we do with it? We have a unique 
history with it. We have danced with the Old Testament, or maybe it is that we've left the Old Testament seated against the wall and we've been doing our own thing and have ignored it to some degree. But I want us, the rest of our time, to look at some Old Testament passages that hopefully bridge the gap between what is old and what is new and give us some lens through which we can see that God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And all of the love and all of the charity and all of the grace and all of the goodness and all of the peace and all of the patience that we, would, we find and we love in God in the New Testament. It's not missing in the Old Testament. I don't even think it's harder to see. I think it's just such a large document. And we have been so conditioned to read through it hastily that we have overlooked things that should be jumping off the page at us. We look at the story of Noah in Bible classes with little children. And what do we take away from the story of Noah? That God saw every inclination of the heart of mankind was always evil all the time, and God destroyed the earth by flood because man was very, very bad. That's one of the big lessons we would teach our children about the, the depravity of mankind and how they had fallen and God just decided he was going to start all over. Is there a lesson about God's grace to be found in the story of Noah? Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Noah found blank in the eyes of the Lord. What do you suppose is that blank? Noah found grace. Other translations, favor in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, don't tell me that there's no grace in the Old Testament. Noah, do you think that Noah, who is viewed as righteous by God and the only one righteous in his generation as far as we understand it, do you think that Noah was righteous because he had kept every one of God's laws perfectly? <laughs> no. Jesus was the only one who had done that. Noah found grace in the eyes of of the Lord. How do you go about finding something? Because you're looking for it. What was different about Noah from everybody else in his generation? They weren't looking for the grace of God. They were looking for fulfillment in, within themselves. They were looking for happiness. They were living in the moment. And for them, the moment was quite long. They were very long-lived. I'm sure they had found every way to, to bring pleasure to their hearts and to their lives. But they had forgotten and neglected God and turned against Him in every way that was imaginable for their own sake. But Noah said, I will not seek these pleasures for myself. I will seek to bring pleasure to Him. I will not seek glory for myself. I will seek glory for Him. I will not create my own righteousness and self-justify all of my own intentions, but I will seek righteousness from Him. And tell me, what kind of promise did Jesus make even before the cross, even in that Old Testament time? What kind of promise did Jesus make regarding people who seek? If you will seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness what will god make sure happens god will make sure you find it if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness you will be filled and that's what was different from noah it's not that noah kept god's laws perfectly but that in that day when no one else was looking for god's righteousness noah sought it 
And we know from Hebrews chapter 11, how did he seek God's righteousness? By faith. All we have to do is, we don't have time to go through Hebrews chapter 11, do we? But if you want a lesson that the Old Testament is all about the same New Testament themes, like faith and like grace and God's mercy and God's love and God protecting people, just go read Hebrews chapter 11 and that preaches itself. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Exodus chapter 25. As we move on through the story of Israel, Exodus chapter 25 and verse 22, it's, it's just the kind of language that I think we read over because we find it procedural. It's just a description of what's happening and it's just part of the story, but it's not a point. But God says, I will meet with you at the mercy seat. You remember the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. You have a a, a precious box that is overlaid with gold, and on the top of this box, what sits is decoration. You have two angelic figures, two two cherubim, and and, and as you dig through the imagery of the Old Testament, you have this picture of, of whatever heaven looks like. It is somehow recreated in the temple and tabernacle construct that, that God who is enthroned in heaven, and we have pictures from Revelation, we have pictures from Ezekiel, and we have pictures from, from other prophetic books. That is, is God alone in heaven? No, he's enthroned there. He's in the very center. Light emanates from his very presence in his throne, and around his throne are these angelic creatures with, with so much power and so much ability, and they, 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 they sing and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Over and over, heaven is just full of these, these worshipful words echoing through the millennia. And so as Moses is, is shown the pattern of whatever he sees on the mountain, I think Moses gets a glimpse, kind of like John does, really. Moses gets to see where it is that God lives, and he's told, Moses, do your best. Make it, make this spot kind of like heaven. And so he begins to, 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 to make curtains and he begins this to make this box and the curtains the embroidery in the curtains is more of these angelic beings and on the top of the the uh, this ark of the covenant where the very presence of God is to dwell in the center of Israel in the midst of his people he has these two angelic figures that are facing each other to depict the throne God sits on the throne And he does a lot of things from there. The throne is his chariot. The throne is his judgment seat. The throne is is the site of his royal sovereign power. But what is his throne called? The mercy seat. That is, every time you approach God in all of his awesome power, in everything that would, would send chills into the spine of a mere mortal. You are reminded this is a place of mercy. And although it is God's judgment seat and He issues righteous judgment, He does not not reserve judgment, He is not timid about being the judge. He is righteous, He is all-knowing. But His judgment is tempered with what? Mercy. Mercy. He knows that we are dust, Psalm 109. He remembers that we are dust. He he knows that we are frail. He became one of us so that he could experience that in all of its fullness. Would it make a difference 
if you and I were to stand before a judge, and as you approach the bench, instead of having uh, the, the, seal of, you know, the seal of the great state of Arkansas and symbols of the judge's power and authority over you, if it said something like, all who approach here receive mercy. Wouldn't that put your heart at ease? Friends, the Old Testament, yes, it's a picture of God as a judge, but he's what kind of judge? He's merciful. Noah found grace. The people of Israel find mercy. A few pages over, Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, which is the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I have mercy. God is all about showing what attributes, even in the Old Testament. He says, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to tell you my name. And when he tells them my name, I am that I am. That is, that is known as his covenant name. That means tied up in revealing his name to that people as a set of promises. This is the time of the Exodus when he is establishing and firming up that relationship with them. He says, I want you to know me. Not just know about me, not just cower in fear away from me, but I want you to know me as much as any people can. This is my name, and I want to show you how good I can be, and I want to show you my mercy, and I want to show you my grace. And, and, and although all the peoples of the world may look and say, Israel, why Israel? They're just a backwater people who've been slaves in Egypt. Jehovah, if that is your name, what good is Israel going to do for you? And he says, no, no, you've, you've missed it. It's not how much good Israel is going to do for me. But what's this equation about? How much good I will do for Israel. Because I've picked you. And don't ask me why. I'll have mercy upon whom I have mercy. I'll, I'll show grace to whom I'll have But I've picked you. And I will love you, and I will be faithful to you, and I will have covenant with you, and I will shower you with goodness and make you more prosperous than you could ever imagine. Because God, in the Old Testament, is full of goodness and charity and grace and love. Second Chronicles, we'll jump a little bit more this time. Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 9. Israel isn't always obedient, doesn't always respond to the goodness and the grace of God like they should. We know they are, are ensnared by idolatry and many other sins through their history, and God warns them. You remember the covenant of blessing and cursing, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, that if you love me, if you follow me, if I have your heart, you will be blessed beyond measure. But on the day that you forget me and forsake me, watch out, because I will also be faithful to discipline you. So here in this passage, that discipline side is, is, is brought under the microscope and, and he says this, if you return to the Lord, so you've left him, you've been chastised and disciplined, but if you return, that is with your hearts, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you, you return to him. The God of the Old Testament, is he, uh, is he a God just with a big stick who's waiting to, st to smite the smite-worthy? 
Is he there just to destroy the sinner? Or does he have compassion and forgiveness? We read the story of the prodigal son as if that's a New Testament kind of thing. But what is this story here? When you return to me, I am more than ready. I want to have you here with me and you will find a, a, a warm welcome and you will find compassion and you will find love. Even, even in the last days of your captivity, your, cap, your captors' hearts will be softened. I'll, I'll make sure of it. So God is not harsh. God is not unforgiving. God is merciful and good. Psalm 23. Have you ever read that one before? course we have and you have there a portrait of God painted in beautiful word pictures of the 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 complete shepherd who sees to all of his sheep's needs to who, who leads who protects who guides who counts and makes sure all the sheep are there and we know from other passages that that if if there was a sheep missing what would this good shepherd have done he'd have gone and he would have sought the one I mean this is this is good leadership This is where your soul is at rest and in peace. And what's the last statement? What's the last observation made? Surely what? How do I summarize this experience with God? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me or will be with me all the days of my life. Is God going to change on me? Is God all of a sudden going to to snap and become angry or, or displeased? Is that who He is? Well, sometimes we seem to think so when we read the Old Testament. But again, I think we're missing these things that ought to be jumping off the page at us that talk about the goodness and the mercy and the compassion and the love of God. He has been faithful, not just to us as Christians, but He's been faithful to all of our forebears in the faith. Habakkuk chapter 2. Is the Old Testament all about rule-keeping? Is it all about some heartless religion rather than obedience that comes from the heart? Not hardly. The prophet Habakkuk, yes, giving Paul some words to quote from the, in Romans chapter 1, but also speaking for his own generation, for his own people, primarily for them. He says this, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, and his, it is not upright within him. And in contrast to that, but the righteous shall live by faith. What does God of the Old Testament want? Does he want just some mindless or heartless obedience? Or does he want faith? Hasn't he always been after faith? In fact, some of the words of the New Testament that are sometimes used to distinguish from the old. Teacher, what is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Man, that sounds like New Covenant kind of stuff. What does God want? God wants love. Folks, where did that come from? It's a quotation from the Old Testament. And when he follows that up with, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Did Jesus just come up with that one? Is that some new covenant legislation? Or is that also a quotation from the Old Testament? The God of the Old Testament is about love. 
and mercy and forgiveness and goodness and, and welcoming and, and all of those things that we think we see new in the New Testament have always been there in God. Maybe we've just overlooked them. The last couple minutes, I want to turn this inside out. We think we see God as harsh sometimes or demanding of obedience in the old and very, very different, very much relaxed in the new. Friends, is, is, does God in the New Testament require or have an expectation of, of non-obedience? Does, does He expect us to just kind of shrug our shoulders at things and, and not be at work or not be as dedicated? No. In fact, many of the quotations and, and references back to the Old Testament, you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he tells the history of Israel and how so many per- perished in the desert, and he says, now this is an example that you don't be like them. Be better than they were. Stick to it even more than they did. Peter would write in, in uh, 2 Peter first chapter, he says, man, we've got things better than the Old Testament prophets. We have a surer message, so all the more give yourself to this Jesus and the glory of God that rests in him. But, but do you remember Peter's response? Acts chapter 5, there, he, and, he and the apostles are called on the carpet, stop preaching. And Peter asks the question back to them, should we obey God or should we obey men? What is his expectation as an apostle? Obedience. God in the new is also about obedience. It's kind of a funny way we look at this. We, we think God in the Old Testament is all about obedience. God in the New Testament is all about love, not hardly. There's plenty of love and forgiveness and charity and mercy in the old and there's plenty of expectation of obedience in the new. We'll close with this from Romans chapter 16. At the end of the book, Paul will write this as a, as a doxology to close. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. This is beginning in verse 25, chapter 16. To him who is able to strengthen you according to the preaching, uh, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. What does that mean? All God's plan that he's been working through the Old Testament and has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, and has now been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God for this purpose, to bring about obedience of faith. Even in the new, Jesus is revealed in all of his fullness. Everything that God has done throughout time, space, and history comes to bear on this moment. For what purpose? To accomplish what? To bring about Obedience of faith. Wasn't God in the Old Testament about that same thing? Everything he did then was to bring about obedience by faith. Everything now to bring about obedience by faith. And to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, it's always been about an obedient heart that seeks God that seeks his righteousness by faith. It was true in Noah's day. It was true of Abraham. It was true of Moses and David. And then pick, pick any of those heroes of faith. What made their faith actually count for something is that they sought God. 
They didn't seek their own righteousness. They sought His righteousness. Read Philippians 3. That's what Paul was all about in the New. That's what Jesus was all about delivering as He died on the cross for us. So friends, this Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to maps, reveals to us the same God. Not skewed one way or skewed the other, but a God who is full of grace and love and mercy of truth from beginning to end. And as we read our Bibles, let's allow those passages in the Old Testament that talk about those parts of God, those attributes, let's let them jump off the page so that we can see how faithful people in Israel, how they would have appreciated their God, so that we too can appreciate everything we have in the fullness of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you have a need tonight, the invitation is, of course, open. If you need to respond to God's goodness and His mercy, if you need to find grace in His eyes, what He's looking for is for people who want to respond to Him in faith. It's always been about that. If we can help you tonight respond to God in faith, step out in your faith in any way, let us know how we can do that as we stand and as we sing.